Over the past number of weeks, as we completed the series of teachings on Buddha nature and the inherent goodness of the heart, and a few talks since then, talked about several aspects of the what are called the awakened heart, the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and equanimity. And tonight I'd like to speak about one other of the qualities of the natural um, beauty of the heart when we let go of what's called the small sense of self, the body of fear. And this is the quality of joy. O nobly born, are you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, the awakened ones, the Buddhist texts begin. Um, remember who you really are. Or as Rumi says, it's all right for a beggar to brag that she's a queen today, that he's a king. Um, and there's actually a, let's see if I can find this poem from William Stafford. second. But it's, it's a poem like the uh, poem about rain. Come on. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world, your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. And when the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you might stand in the corner shivering, and the people who go by, they wonder at your calm. They miss the whisper that runs every day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king, maybe I'm a queen. So the invitation of spiritual practice in one way is to come back and reawaken the sense of nobility, of well-being, of wholeness that is our birthright. And the teachings of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abode of the heart, as the Buddha speaks of them, are really the teachings that remind us that this is within us and within every single being. We don't get to choose the circumstances of our life in the world very often, but we do get to choose to celebrate its wonders. And this quality, mudita it's called, is sometimes translated as gladness, as, as joy, as rapture, as pleasure, as welcoming, as joy in the happiness of others, which is really interesting. Because often we can see others be happy, and then the enemy of joy, in part, is the comparing mind, as if we think there isn't enough happiness to go around. If you're going to be happy and you are, well, what about me? It's like love. Well, they've got the love, then, then there's not enough. Um, and it's this comparing mind, better or worse than, or the same as, um, that's really um, a delusion from the small sense of self. <coughs> when people ask, um, when is it finally time to make up your mind about someone? The answer is never, right? Because you don't know. Um, and instead of pigeonholing or giving some idea about how someone should be, each person is really a mystery. They are. And the capacity to see that mystery and bless them is one of the great joys of spiritual life. The capacity to take joy in being alive itself in the 10,000 joys of the world. It's also welcoming. Remember the poem I started last week with from Naomi Nye. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's from, where he's headed. 
That way he'll have strength enough to answer, or by then you'll be such good friends you won't care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts, here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not too busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in this world. I refuse to be claimed by this. Your plate is waiting to be filled. We will snip fresh tea, fresh mint, into your teacup. Come join us. So when we come to meditate, or when we reconnect inwardly with the awakened heart, this quality of joy and happiness becomes natural to us, available. And you know it when you read the poetry of Rumi, this tremendous ecstatic groundedness, someone said, generosity of spirit. His poetry is called The Ocean, the Mathnawi is the ocean of poetry. And he didn't even write it down. He just wandered around and looked at this amazing world and kept, this poetry kept pouring out of him and the people kept notes, you know, and this whole ocean came. There's an enormous generosity and humor at work, fresh wild moments within a profound peace, drunken lyrics dissolving within a starry clarity spontaneous pleasure and discipline as well. You are invited to the ocean, says Rumi. After the Buddha's enlightenment, one of the first things that he did um, when he got up from that seat and awakened to the liberation of the heart was to walk some distance from the tree under which he'd sat, feel each step as he took it on the earth, and then turn around and gaze at the tree in gratitude. And he spent seven days, it's sad as the myth goes anyway, just looking at the beauty of the tree in the spot where he'd sat and appreciating the tree and the shelter it had provided and all that he had awakened to. Joy arises when we let ourselves follow what is sometimes called the, the heart's silent source of love, of what we most deeply love, what brings us alive as a parent or an artist or a merchant or a healer or a gardener, it doesn't really matter, but tending that which we love and seeing it. The uh, musician Puccini, who said, I've done nothing, I've simply written down what I hear from God. And most of the people I know that are writers, actually, they either hear the words and then write them down. That's kind of how it is for me. I hear. I sit and I listen, you know, and I kind of hear what it should sound like. In fact, when there's a lot of noise around, it's really hard for me to write because I can't hear the words. Right? But some other people I know, they don't hear it. They see it. They get some vision and they see it and then they write what they see. Some people I've asked say that it kind of comes up through their bodies from the earth. Um, people who write kind of get their words and inspiration in all these different channels. But what's really clear is nobody's writing their own material, right? <laughs> it's all coming from someplace bigger. It is like Rumi's was and Puccini and Mozart. I mean, you don't think that young guy Mozart was just, you know, okay, I'm five years old, I'm going to write a symphony. Let's see, now what's the structure of symphony? He heard it and he wrote it down. And it's here for us as well. As Whitman says, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars, and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven, and a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Life is this simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent, and the divine is shining through it all the time, says Thomas Merton. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. And what makes a saint or a holy person, he says, is not their holiness or sanctity, but the fact that they can see the beauty in everyone they meet. And you know it when you meet, and I'm, I think about being with Gosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, my teacher and friend, um, when he was here for our Buddhist teachers meeting at the same time the Dalai Lama was here. There's a beautiful picture in our little meditation gratitude hut of our lineage te teachers. 
um, of the meeting here of Gosananda and the Dalai Lama, because they each met, and they hadn't seen each other for a while, and they love and esteem one another, and each bowed, and then the other bowed, and the next one bowed, and they kept trying to bow lower than the other, until finally they were bent way, way over, almost at the bottom, and their heads touched. And there was this sense of just such love and respect, and then they stood up and, and they laughed. And they embrace one another. And these are people who carry the weight of the sufferings of Cambodia or Tibet. They are some of the most joyful hearts that one might ever meet. What has made you happy recently? Reflect for a moment. What brings joy to you? in these days and weeks past. And feel what it's like in your heart and in your body, your being. It's not far away, it is nearer than near. And we share it from flower box to cathedral, from the waiting in line in a nice way in the marketplace, this dance of respect and care. A friend who teaches psychology of sense perception has an exercise in her psychology class in which, um, actually it's part of the final exam, after people learn about paying attention, one part of the final exam is she has a great big basket of oranges in the table um, and she passes an orange out to each student in the class. And then she gives them, as part of the exam, 10 or 15 minutes to describe their orange. Which is a long time to have an orange, you know, and feel the little bumps of its texture and notice its navel and the rim of green around that and the, the scent at different distances from your nose and how it sounds when you squish it a little bit and all the things that you can learn if you make friends with it, basically, in some way because it's part of us, this earth, or it will be when you eat it, anyway. And then, without telling the students, she collects what's going to happen. She collects the orange, and then the oranges, puts them out on the table there, return them back here. And then the next part of the exam is that you have to come up and find your orange <laughs> in those 50 oranges. And people do it quite easily, because it's my orange. I know you, you know. Just that paying attention. It's like the story of the Russian astronauts who brought some goldfish up to into orbit with them in the space station to see how fish would do in weightlessness, which wasn't terribly good as it turned out. Um, and, and they spent hours, days, after a week or two, the fish weren't doing that well, calling back to Earth and how are we going to help our fish and what can we do and so forth. On Earth, a couple of goldfish, I mean, this is a billion dollar space station and all these great scientific experiments. But as they said, when you're far away from home, every little flicker of life becomes so precious. All we wanted was to have these fish be with us and bring them back to Earth. You know, and then the, the guys who came back said, when our capsule landed and we were finally back, we got out of the capsule in wherever it landed, in Kazakhstan or something, and knelt down and kissed the earth. It was so wonderful to be back, just to stand on this earth. Do not sit long with sadness, my friend, says Rumi. When you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. Or André Gide, who writes, as a French, French philosopher, this is pretty good, not the usual. <laughs> know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. I have another poem that speaks of this, in, in a, I think in a way that we need in this time. It's called A Brief for the Defense. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else. 
with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. And the poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. And there is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. And if we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, yes, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. And if the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. <laughs> we must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the darkness and silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. A brief for the defense. In last week's <laughs> New Yorker, Jack Gilbert. Sometimes we feel that we betray the sorrows of the world if we let ourselves feel joy. But in the Buddhist teachings it said that the capacity for joy and that capacity which is matched with our capacity for love is what is natural to the open heart, to the beautiful heart. A kind of innocence, you see it in the laughter of the Dalai Lama, again in the laughter of the wise. Rachel Carlson, who writes, a child's world is fresh and new and beautiful, full of wonder, excitement. It is our misfortune that for most of us, that clear-eyed vision for what is beautiful and awe-inspiring is dimmed before we reach adulthood. If I had influence over the good fairy who presides over all children, I should ask that her gift to each child would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout their life. And so the verses of the Buddha invite this for us. As the bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty, so let the wise-hearted one wander, bringing harm to none and blessing to all. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashion from your life as many good deeds. There's a beauty of virtue, a beauty of integrity, a beauty of caring for this earth and life we're given, no matter how difficult it is, and appreciation. And it comes when we let go of the small sense of self, the body of fear, the story that we carry of our difficulties, it's always there, always here. So interesting, you go to a Zen temple and there's this rock garden and you'd think, you know, in theory, gravel wouldn't really make much beauty. I mean, someone says, I'm going to put a load of gravel in your yard. You don't think, oh, wow, how exciting. <laughs> Something beautiful is going to happen. But yet you go and the the, gar the rock garden of the Zen temple is held with such an eye of beauty and such care and raked in those beautiful wave-like patterns with a stone in the middle that all of a sudden the gravel of the world takes on a shine to it. Again from Thomas Merton where he writes, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, not just the gravel but the person next to you, might even be harder than the gravel, isn't it? The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge can touch, 
the core of their reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. <laughs> and I read this often because it's one of the most um, expressive passages of seeing another being, the secret beauty. It has a transformative effect when we allow ourselves to look at another being and see that secret beauty. It changes them as it changes us. So there was a study that was done. I don't like studies exactly in this way, but I have to tell the story anyway. Um, in London some years ago, a kind of sociological study. And it was done in an area, a high crime area, which basically means an area of a lot of poverty and <laughs> injustice. Um, and there was a lot of um, struggle with how to tend to the problems of this community. Um, and in this particular uh, study, two parallel streets less than a mile apart were chosen that had similar populations, similar um, uh, difficulties with crime and so forth. And one of them, unbeknownst to the occupants of that street, was chosen for care and cleaning for a year. Every day the street was cleaned, graffiti was taken off, the plants were um, uh, watered, and if they were dying, new plants were placed in the, the trees and the bushes on the street. Um, the lights were replaced immediately so that it was kept beautiful. Nothing was added to it, nothing different, no one was told about it. It just was beautified for what it was. And one year later, the crime statistics showed that the level of violence and crime on that street was almost half of what it was on the road a mile away. There's something that comes, a kind of spiritual truth that comes when we allow ourselves to tend the world and see its beauty and touch it with joy, with happiness. And in fact, if we come to spiritual life and don't find ourselves becoming happier, it's not working right. I mean, the point isn't to suffer more. You suffer enough. And there's a longing in each one of us, in every person, for joy, for beauty, for harmony. We can all remember the moments that bring us alive. And having a, a, a daughter who, um, my daughter Caroline, is uh, by temperament, is, is a relatively sanguine, happy person. And she's always looking for those kind of moments. I mean, one of her practices that we've done since she was tiny is um, always to pay for the cars behind us on the bridges or tolls or whatever, you know. She got really disappointed with fast track on the bridge because <laughs> often the cars behind us wouldn't have to pay. And then it would be two or three cars back she'd be watching just to see the smile on that person's face. <laughs> Albert Camus, who writes, a person's life is but a slow track to rediscover through the detours of art those one or two moments in whose presence their heart first opened. We each remember the moments of joy. You can remember them as it, whenever it was at that time. And we look for it. I mean, think about the beauty and joy that you have sought to reawaken in your life. And then there's that wonderful sound of the rain. <coughs> I talked some months ago about this man. Somebody has to remind me of his last name. Um, the, the, the person who um, has founded the Church of 80% Sincerity, David. <laughs> Does anybody remember his name? Hmm? Ro David Roach, okay. I need to write this down. Um, and he lives in Marin. And uh, I learned about him first uh, from, my, from my daughter's class, where he went to speak at her middle school some years ago, and then from Annie Lamott and some other friends, mutual friends. And David Roach was born. Hmm? 
Sure, sure you can't hear with the rain. Can you turn this up a bit? Absolutely. Um, can you hear that? Is that better? Yeah. yeah, thank you. So David Roach, who lives in Marin, was born um, with a profoundly disfigured face. Um, and he's the founder of the Church of 80% Sincerity. Because <laughs> he says 80% is pretty good for most of us, right? A if we're 80% compassionate, right? 80% wise, 80% celibate, whatever it is that you choose, right? <laughs> and he talks about trusting the reality of unconditioned love. But also he acknowledges that he has, as he says, it has a shelf life of about 10 seconds. <laughs> Darling, I'll love you till the end of dinner, right? <laughs> and he's funny and he's wise and he's married to this very beautiful woman, Marlene. And he goes around, especially to middle schools, that's where he, and he gets on stage and, and people, they can't even bear to look at him. He says, look at me, here I am, the worst thing you can imagine, right? Because most teenagers think their bodies are already deformed and disfigured. <laughs> That's kind of the way the culture is. And they start to laugh as he talks about, and they recognize in themselves their self-pity, their fears, and gradually become relieved just to be human, 80% human, as he says, with all our flaws. Outwardly, this horrible thing has happened. And inwardly, this secret beauty, this, his spirit shines. And by the end, he says, tell me, do I look any different to you? And they're all able to look at him, and they're all able to laugh. One of our local saints. In our meditation practice, in our driving meditation, in our family meditation, you don't think that's a meditation? <laughs> Tough practices, right? 101, here you are, driving. Your cell phone meditation, right? <laughs> <sighs> to keep that spirit of joy and invite the beauty that is there in front of you into your heart. So a story to read to you from last year. It was Thursday, Thanksgiving. Our family had spent the days before the holiday in San Francisco with my husband's parents. But in order for us to be back to work on Friday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles home to Los Angeles on Thanksgiving Day. It was normally an eight-hour drive, but with kids it can be 14-hour endurance test. <laughs> when we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City. This little metropolis is made up of six gas stations and a diner, and it was into that that the four of us trooped, road-weary and saddle-sore. As I sat Eric, our one-year-old, in a high chair, I looked round the room. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Everyone else was eating, talking quietly, aware we were all somehow out of place on this special day. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee, Hi there! Two words he thought were one. Hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the metal high chair tray, his face alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped, and then I saw the source of his merriment, and my eyes could not take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, and worn, baggy pants, a spindly body, toes that poked out of would-be shoes, and a face like none other, gums as bare as Eric's, hair unwashed, uncombed, almost unbearable, whiskers too short to be a beard. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled, and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. <laughs> My husband and I exchanged the look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi there! Every call was echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and several people sitting near us ahemmed out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and he pulverized it on the tray. I whispered, Why me? under my breath. Our meal came and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, Do you know Patty Cake? Attaboy, do you know Peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows Peekaboo. 
Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was probably drunk and a definite disturbance, and I was embarrassed. My husband was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence, except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. Finally, enough. I turned the high chair. Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me out of here before he speaks to Eric, I headed toward the door. It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew close to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him and any air he might be breathing. And as I did, Eric, all the while his eyes riveted to his new best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching out with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored, would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms <laughs> to the man's. And suddenly a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder and the man's eyes closed and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands full of grime and pain and hard labor so gently cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. And I stood as the old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment. And then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. And he said in a firm, commanding voice, you take care of this baby. And somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. And he pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly and longingly, as though he was in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my thanksgiving. And I said nothing more than a muttered thanks, and with Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car, and Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, don't let me forget. We all search for beauty through our life in so many different ways. All of us, as men and women, need to somehow create a light of our own life. In fact, these are the last words of the Buddha. Make of yourself a light. And sometimes the beauty is found even in the midst of the suffering, in the pain and the grief. If you read in Thomas More's descriptions of the care of the soul. He talks about how depression and sorrow and jealousy, narcissism and struggles, give a patina to the soul, bring a kind of brightness to the spirit because we have somehow made it through. We have suffered them and in some way found the secret beauty in their midst, in spite of them, beyond them something greater even than that which we thought was too heavy to bear. And we all have our measure of sorrows to carry, confusion and tension and fear and ambition. And joy is really the reminder that we can release those too, that we needn't carry those that we can find a way to be here and alive in this moment, fully alive, fully awake, fully present. To do this, spiritual life has to really be done in a different way. It's not a thing of struggle or self-improvement. You know, you go to the gym and you take enough vitamins and you do all these things and you become a good spiritual person as well sort of the self-improvement prison.
one of the Hasidic rabbis once encountered a man eating on the fast day, the holy <coughs> fast day, and said to this follower, surely you've forgotten this is a fast day and thus you eat. Oh, said the man, no, I know it's the sacred fast day. Ah, oh, then you're not well. Your doctor's instructed you you don't need to fast. Nah, I'm perfectly healthy, the man replied. And then the rabbi lifted his eyes toward heaven. Look how precious your children are, dear God. I've provided this man with ample excuse to explain away his behavior, but he refuses to deviate from the truth even when it incriminates him. And he bowed to the man as he was eating, you know. Or another simple story in the same spirit. Bill had a gift for optimism. He believed that everything was beautiful. If Bill tossed a ball in the air three times and tried to hit it three times with a bat and three times missed, he would, undisturbed, say out loud, wow, what a pitcher. <laughs> it is here. The secret beauty is here when you miss the ball and when you hit it. It's not about hitting the ball or missing it. It's just being here alive. And the question for us is what brings our heart alive? What brings this joy? And what allows us to share it with others? Because the quality of mudita, sometimes translated as sympathetic joy, means that we catch it from one another. We support one another. We sit in meditation and we s support one another. Someone laughs and it lightens our heart. Someone sees beauty, makes beauty. Again, a little story for you. Some years ago on a sunny Sunday afternoon in Seattle, a young priest stopped to talk with a parishioner and her five-year-old daughter, Carmen. The little girl had a new jump rope, and the priest began to demonstrate the intricacies of jumping rope to her. After a while, Carmen began to jump, first once, then twice, and the mother and priest clapped loudly for her skill. Eventually, the little girl was able to jump quite well on her own and wander off with her newfound skill while the young priest and the mother chatted for a few moments until Carmen, with the saddest, wisest eyes imaginable, returned dragging her rope. Mommy, she lamented, I can do it, but I need lots of clapping. We catch it from one another. And the Buddha speaks often about celebration and rejoicing in the holy life and rejoicing in the beauty of the world and the beauty of the heart. And then says, go forth to those who found joy, freedom, happiness in every direction for the welfare of the many, for the well-being of the many, out of compassion for the many and set a lamp up in the darkness and bring the light of the heart to whomever you encounter. Make tea for them. Cut the mint into the tea. You know, welcome them into your home for three days without asking who they are or where they're from first. Just put food on their plates. From Zorba. I received my greatest lesson in aesthetics from an old man in an Athenian tavern. Night after night he sat alone at the same table, drinking his wine with precisely the same gestures. I finally asked him why he did this, and he said, Young man, first I look at my glass to please my eyes. Then I take it in my hand to please my hand. And then I bring it to my nose to please my nostrils. And I'm just about to bring it to my lips when I hear a small voice in my ear saying, how about me? So I tap the glass on the table for it to ring before I drink it. And thus, I enjoy it with all the senses that I have been given. Now, I've looked for an excuse to read this passage. And I'm going to do it even though, well, you'll see. If I could have the muse of my choice... She would be Doña Clara de Arasa, the Spanish nun of the 17th century,
who gave up the habit to become a Mexican bandit and sword woman. <laughs> this is true. This is a true story. She was especially good with railway robbery. The silver that Spain was wrenching from the poor in the mountains of the northwest Mexico, she put in her pocket and spent freely in the cantinas. She dressed as a bandit, was finally arrested in Peru, and deported to Spain for a trial. The Pope pardoned her, and the Cardinal gave her several thousand pesos as an allowance. She traveled back to Mexico and to Zihuataneo, where I met her on a train. I was a passenger. She was robbing the train and invited me to join her. <laughs> I asked, what is in, there, in it for me? She answered, freedom, absolute freedom, to write, to sing, to act, as you are called to do. You will have to learn swordsmanship, of course, how to gallop a horse, jump trains, and let silver run like water between your fingers, to keep late hours, to drink well without falling asleep, to pray in the cantina and dance in the cathedral. <laughs> See what the Buddha thinks of that. <laughs> The world, although the world is full of suffering, says Helen Keller, it is also full of the overcoming of it. And what this quality of joy brings to us is the ability to bless what is in front of us, to offer the blessings of, may your happiness increase, may you be well, may your joy grow fuller, no matter what. You know, you see somebody, I mean, you can look at the people who are sitting around you and imagine reciting, because this is the ancient recitation of the practice of joy. Imagine reciting in the heart, may your joy increase. May your happiness and the causes of your happiness increase. And feeling that and sensing it and intending that for each person you meet. There's a, it just becomes a whole different way of seeing, a kind of beauty and innocence. I mean, children know it. You become again as a child, if it were. So there's a story I like to tell once in a while, and tonight seems like the right time to tell it. When I lived in Boston years ago after coming back from the monastery, um, I fell in love with a, a woman and lived with her. She was divorced and had two young children. And uh, for a year or more, we lived together. The relationship was another story. It's troubled as they can be, especially when, you, when you're young and you don't know what you're doing, as opposed to when you're old and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> um, but anyway, one day, um, I saw this poster that the Ringler Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus was coming to town. And so I decided, oh, I'm going to treat these two kids who are now grown and um, I got tickets for us, for Seth and Chani, and they were, th I think, ages three and five. And I got really good seats, like second row center. And there we were in the circus, and they were still small, maybe three and four. And um, you know how it is with little kids. You can take them to the Grand Canyon if they're little, and they'll reach down and pick up a stone and say, isn't this pretty? You know, it's, they don't need the Grand Canyon. The stone, the little pebbles, the gravel, the, the flower, the stick are as alive to them as, okay, there's a big hole in the ground. That's nice, too. <clears throat> so there we are sitting, and you know, there are people doing their high-wire acts and all these things. And that's kind of far away for little kids. So that was, but what they liked <clears throat> was the animals. There we were sitting, <coughs> and excuse me, after the high wire act. Then came the horses in parade, you know, and people riding them. And then out came the elephants. This was the best, you know, and we're right there. And so the elephants parade around holding tails. And then they stop, and the, right there, <coughs> there was an elephant quite close to us. And they're watching, quite excited about this. And all of a sudden, the elephant in front of us decides to pee. <laughs> and this huge flood <laughs> pours down from the elephant, this giant puddle. And there, their eyes get really big. Wow, this is really something magnificent. Right? <laughs> 
So I'm looking with them, too. I mean, it was interesting, you know? <laughs> and then the elephant decides to poo, right? <laughs> and they are like bowling balls, plop, right? Plop, these huge, and their kids are watching, wow, plop, plop, you know? I mean, this is important to children, right? This is, I mean, this is, they're trying to figure out, I got into this body, you put stuff in one end, it comes out the other, how do you work this thing, right? And there it is, plop, right? And for weeks afterward, how was the circus? Fantastic. Oh, we went to the circus. What did you see there? Oh, the elephant. <laughs> it is always here. It is. Dear God, writes one little girl in children's letters to God, if you watch in church on Sunday, I'll show you my new red shoes. <laughs> There's a kind of courage to allow ourselves to feel joy, as that poem that I read from the New Yorker says. In these dark times, the reason I give this talk tonight as well is we're coming up to the winter solstice. And I was at a ritual yesterday that was in part for uh, a man who's been part of the community. We've been working with people in prison who just got out of some years in San Quentin. And part of our blessing did it, for him was to make this traditional bowl of holy water in the way that's done in the Buddhist um, monasteries um, for a long time, in which you light a tape or a candle and hold it over the water and let the wax drip into the water and hold the flame and make prayers of what you wish. And the whole community, everyone had a taper and held it over the water. And once you've made your prayers, you take the fire of the candle and you plunge it into the water so that that water will carry also the fire of the Spirit. And then the water is placed on his body. In the rain that we are hearing in the midst of this dark night in the rain, in the midst of the winter solstice, this time of darkness, in the midst of the fact that our nation is still at war in one or two or <laughs> ten different ways, the misguided wars on drugs and the wars in the Middle East and the other kinds of wars. You know, war on social condition doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, a war on terror? Um, wait a second. <laughs> That's like having a war on war, right? Um, in the times of darkness and confusion, what is asked of us, as the Buddha says, is to make of ourself a light. And it takes a courage to bring your joy and your happiness into this world. Deborah Chamberlain Taylor talks, who teaches here, talks about running a group that she ran for a number of years um, over in the East Bay. And she says toward the end of these, um, this group, after several years, it was a women's group, I believe, there was one particular woman in this group um, who had lived a really difficult life. She was a woman of color who'd grown up in a community, in a place where there was um, no support, no education, no health care, poverty, broken home, um, lots of drugs. She somehow survived that, got pregnant really young, um, single mom, somehow educated herself, became a feminist, became a radical, um, uh, politicized and really worked for the justice. She suffered all the years of racism that the insanity of our culture inflicts on people. Um, and as the group was ending, the last few sessions, one day she spoke up, this woman who'd gone through all of this loss and struggle and courage to make herself alive no matter what. And she said, I'm going to do, as she was talking about leaving the group, she said, now I'm going to do the most radical thing of all. And everyone listened. And she said, I am going to let myself be happy. After everything that I am gone through and everything I'm done, I'm now going to do the most radical thing of all. I'm going to let myself be happy. Oh, you who 
are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, O nobly born. Let yourself be happy. Let the innate joy of the heart bless you and bring it to bless others. See the secret beauty in those that you meet. May you be happy. May you be joyful. May your happiness increase. May your joy grow. Reflect for a moment. What prevents our joy? our fears, our attachments to certain things, our judgments. And what would it mean to make this radical step to allow the joy of your heart to shine? And what prevents our happiness in the joy of others? See the beauty and acknowledge it in ourself and in another. Usually we stop at this point and do a little inner meditation, but instead I invite you to peek around. There's people near you, you know, and as you do, not quite yet, <laughs> let the little phrase of the heart's intention of this practice, may your joy increase. May your happiness increase. May that, let that phrase be in there and look around and wish it for somebody. You don't have to say it out loud or get weird about it, but just inside, <laughs> right? And feel what it's like just to do that. I know you're shy, but. I mean, if you think of your child, if you have one, or your favorite child in the world, and how you want them to be happy and successful, you know, and may their joy increase their happiness. You want that for your child. This is somebody's child. May your joy increase. May the causes for your joy increase. And now the second step. Imagine, feel that somebody's actually been looking at you with the eyes of the beloved, the eyes of wisdom, saying to you, may your joy increase, may your happiness increase. And take that in. Let that, too, feed your spirit. As uh, an ancient Christian mystic wrote, if in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then God will once again become a child on this earth. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.